most people are like, I have a really good job, so that's the safest thing I could be doing, but actually that's the riskiest thing you can be doing. Welcome to Pencil Leadership. I'm Chris Anderson, success and lifestyle entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help you realize your full potential so you can leave a positive mark on the world. So if you're ready, take out your pencils and let's begin. Warren Buffett said, if you do not find a way to make money while you sleep, you will work until you die. And T. Harv Ecker said, you can only be financially free when your passive income exceeds your expenses. This is episode 118 with real estate attorney, broker, investor, and podcast host, Seth Bradley. Now, Seth is a managing partner of Law Capital Partners and his own firm, Bradley Law Limited, and he helps his clients with their real estate and asset protection needs. So if you want to learn a little bit more about passive income and real estate, this episode is for you. And if you like anything you heard, make sure to share it on Instagram so you can help somebody else. And don't forget to tag me at chris.t.anderson. What got you like focusing on passive income and helping people do that? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in real estate. I don't exactly know where that came from. I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family in West Virginia. My dad's a retired coal miner. My mom's a retired school teacher. So they weren't business people. They weren't like big on real estate, like any of that stuff. I wasn't exposed to it. So I ended up going into medicine to begin with. I went to med school for a year and a little bit and then went eventually figured out that I hated that, got out of that, ended up getting my MBA and going to law school. And, you know, during law school, that's when I started getting exposed to more business people and, you know, started getting, you know, that entrepreneurship kind of bug. But I was still kind of stuck in the W-2 mindset at that point. Ended up getting a big law firm job, great job, great paying job. But I think, you know, during that time is when I started kind of having those revelations, those aha moments where it was like, you know, I don't feel right. You know, us entrepreneurs were like, man, when you're in an office, and you're especially a stuffy one. You don't, and Chris, you know this, man. Like you don't feel right. Like you don't feel like yep. you belong there, right? I don't know if anybody. Well, some people do. Some that's people, true. Yeah, that's, some that's, do, and that's all right. That that's perfectly fine. But some of us, we don't want to have you know that coffee chat. We don't want to you know have twenty thousand bosses like giving us the same paperwork to do. It's just like we just feel out of place. And I started having those moments where it's like, man, I don't feel right here. There's something else going on. And again, I was always interested in real estate, and actually ended up going into real estate with my law practice. So I'm a real estate attorney. So I started seeing people, you know, close these big deals and I'm helping them, giving them advice. And I'm thinking, I want to do what they're doing. They're on the equity side of these big, you know, hundred million dollar plus real estate transactions and I'm advising them. So why shouldn't I be on their side of the table instead of the service side? So that's really what started getting me interested. But I was still stuck in that mindset though, man. Like, I mean, when I first jumped in, I house hacked into a duplex. I mean, it wasn't like, even though I was a big law firm attorney, I didn't say, okay, how can I buy a, you know, a 200 unit apartment complex right out of the gate? My mind just wasn't really quite there yet. It takes a little bit of time for your mindset to change. Yeah. So real estate to me is in the future, I'm going to get involved into it. And I'm just curious your opinion right now. I mean, it's May 4th, 2021, or if you're listening to this in the future or whenever you're listening to this. What's the market look like right now from your perspective? Is this a good time for people to get into real estate or should they kind of hold off a little bit? I've heard about the bubble. I've heard, you know, with the lumber prices going through the roof, like what's your opinion? 
Yeah. I mean, there's so many different aspects of that. I don't think there's ever really a bad time to buy. I mean, I think that if you wait, you're always going to be waiting. You're always going to be thinking about, oh, well, I'm going to wait for the dip or I'm going to wait for the next recession. I mean, people that were doing that already skipped one recession because we didn't have it. And we're still into the, you know, the second cycle here in real estate. We haven't had a recession yet. I mean, there will be one, but you know, you can still buy right and buy for cash flow and make money. And as long as you bought it right, you got the right debt piece in there. It doesn't matter if there's a recession and, and you bought it right again and it's cash flowing, you just hold it. I mean, who cares if the property value goes down? If it's cash flowing, you're just collecting those checks. And then whenever, then it'll eventually go back up. I mean, unless it's, you know, one of these cities that doesn't come back. I mean, even the cities that you think of that quote unquote, don't come back, like, you know, Detroit or Cleveland, they're coming back. They've kind of went down, they've hit the bottom and now they leveled out and they're coming back. It's just a matter of time. It just takes time. So if you buy for cash flow and not for kind of that immediate appreciation and hoping to get rich quick, then everything's going to be fine. Okay. So how does that look? If you're wanting to get into real estate, single home, multi-home, we'll dive into that a little bit later. But just in general, for its cash flow, kind of long-term play, even if there's a recession, how do you safely, I guess, not necessarily safely, but how do you smartly go about that to protect from a recession if it was to happen? Yeah. I mean, the most simplistic way to put it is, you know, there's a few things you need to look at. I mean, the first of all, you got to get a decent debt piece on it. See how much that's going to cost you. What do you mean by debt piece? Is that like a loan? Loan, like your loan. Yeah. You got to look at your loan, get a decent loan and look and see what your costs are. So you need to do some market research, make sure that, you know, the market that you buy in is doing well, or, you know, it's not in a decline, it's not in a war zone or anything like that. And then see how much you can rent that property out for. Take that gross rental income that you can make and then subtract that debt piece, whatever you're going to pay for your mortgage payment, your insurance, your taxes, your maintenance, all the stuff that's going to cost you money. Subtract all that from your gross rent. And at the end of the day, that's your cash flow. That's the money that's actually going to hit your pocket. So if that's a cash flow positive property and it's in a market that's not declining, then even in a recession, you should be able to be fine and just hold on to it. Even if you're a break-even, you know, you're fine. It's the people that, you know, they're betting on the property to increase in value and they're, you know, paying more for a property than they can really afford. And then when the market goes down, then they're in trouble. Then they're upside down their mortgage. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Just calculating everything you're going to owe on the property and then what's it bringing in. Yeah. Chris, it's really like any business. I mean, you look at your gross income, see what that is, subtract all your operating expenses. At the end of the day, see what your NOI is. And then at the end of the NOI, you've got to add on the debt piece. You know, what are you going to pay for your mortgage? But if it's cash flow positive, then you're going to be fine. So how does someone go about even getting into real estate? I mean, you hear all sides like, okay, I have this much, so what percentage should I put down? Or I don't have anything, so is it okay to get a whole loan? Or like, am I even able to get a full loan without any money down? Like, what's that next step? The easiest way to get in is the way that I did, and that's a house hack. And you might've heard of that term. That's basically where you get a mortgage on the property that has really favorable terms because you're gonna live in the property. It's gonna be your principal residence. So you put a minimal amount down if you want to. You can put as little as 3.5% down. Depending on the loan, you might have to put 5% down. And then you'll have a little bit of reserves that you'll have to have. But think about that. I mean, you know, you get into, let's just say, a $200,000 property and you want to put $10,000 down to get into it. I mean, that's unbeatable. And what the goal is, is for it to be duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex. 
and you live in one unit and you rent out the other ones. And hopefully you still even make a cash flow positive, even with you occupying okay. one of the units. So that's a safer, an easier way to get involved is living on the property you're purchasing and renting. That's right. And it depends on the flexibility of, you know, your significant other or, you know, whatever your life situation is. But that is by far the easiest, least expensive, really way to get in. And I think the safest too, because you're actually living at the property. So your tenants are there, you're there, you know, if something goes wrong, I mean, you can still get property management if you want. But you know, given the fact that you're on the property, you probably don't even need to pay the property manager an extra 10%. And then eventually, if that's your first property, later on, you can kind of learn the ropes and learn what goes into the property management. It's always good to learn a business before you kind of delegate things off to somebody else. So if you house hacking, say you have an LLC that is the real estate kind of thing or or whatever, if the business purchases that condo, that duplex, whatever, and then you're paying the rent to your business, the business, isn't that also kind of like a bonus too with taxes? So there's a bunch of different ways you can get around it. I mean, as far as the loan itself, that'll have to come out in your individual name if you're going to put down that three and a half or 5%, because that's the whole point is you're the owner occupant. And that's why they give you such favorable terms. You're going to get the lowest interest rate. You're going to have to put the least amount down and all that. But you know, you can set it up so that you have kind of this property management LLC that all the you know income and expenses are going to go through. And that way you kind of separate that liability, the liability of you know, the transactions away from the liability of the holding company, which would actually hold the real estate. And in this instance, you wouldn't have a holding company because you had to take the loan out in your name. And again, you know, I do asset protection. So there are ways to get around that. I mean, you know, the loan comes out in your individual name, but then you can deed it over to, you know, a trustee of a land trust. And then the land trust is owned by an LLC. And then the LLC is owned and down the line, you can get into these intricate ownership structures to, you know, prevent yourself from acquiring any liability whatsoever if something happens on the property. But, you know, if you're starting out with one property, I don't think you really need to worry about all that quite yet. Gotcha. Okay. It's all interesting stuff. There's so many, you know, things you can do and pass. It kind of Intrigues me with that. So you're looking, I mean, I think real estate, because you do it right, it can pay for itself and it can, like you said, be cash flow positive going forward. And their house, there'll always be real estate, I think. And just it's the location, the market, like you said. So with that, and you mentioned the house hack being like a duplex, triplex or whatever. So do you kind of favor multifamily dwellings like that versus single families? Yeah. Well, first, I think I should kind of define when I say multifamily, I actually mean commercial. Normally, when you're in the real estate world, if you say residential, if you use that term, you mean one to four units, because up to four units is what loans and what banks will generally consider residential. As soon as you hit five units or above, they consider that a commercial property. And the term for that is multifamily. So when we say like single family or residential, we mean one to four units. When we say commercial or multifamily, it's usually five. Okay. So some multifamily being like apartment complex, condo, condominium with lots of lots of doors. Yeah, it starts with five. It doesn't have to have a ton of units. It can have five. It can have 10,000. That's still multifamily. So pros and cons, I'm sure to each with the single, like four or less, obviously versus five or more. Do you still kind of lean towards the commercial, the multifamily, five or more rooms or livings? 
Yeah, I do. It's kind of a natural progression. I mean, some people just jump straight into large properties. It's kind of difficult to do. You've got to find kind of your niche. You've got to find a way to to add value to partner with people just because it becomes a more complicated framework to own a, you know, 100 plus unit apartment complex. But, you know, some people say jump in as big of a property as you can. I'm not really in that boat because that's not how I did it. And I think there are advantages to starting with you know, a house hack or buying a duplex or flipping a property. I mean, I think there's a lot of advantages that you can get from that just from an experience standpoint. I mean, you just learn a lot from that and kind of work your way up or, you know, just do a couple and then say, all right, I'm ready for a bigger property. If you want to dive into some of the advantages and disadvantages, I mean, I'll start with single family. You know, obviously it's a lower cost. I mean, you're talking about a single family house or uh, fourplex or something like that. I mean, lower cost, something you might not think about, but generally speaking, not always, but you're probably going to have a higher quality tenant pool because people living in a single family house are probably, and this is again, general, but probably more, you know, better off or wanting to treat that house like their own compared to, you know, if you live in a 200 unit apartment complex. There's more exits. I mean, if you buy a single family house, you can sell it, you can fix it up and then sell it, you can rent it. And there's a lot more of a buyer pool to unload it. I mean, there's a ton of people that you know have enough money to buy single family houses or duplexes or things like that compared to large apartment complex. And you know, getting into the disadvantages, you know, it's just lower cash flow. Obviously, you have less doors, lower cash flow. One big one is you know vacancies. So if you have a single family house and the tenant moves out, you have zero income. It goes from you know, 100% to zero compared to if you have a 10 unit and one tenant moves out, you're still making 90% of your cash right then. So that's kind of one of the really big ones. The other one is valuation. So when we talked about, you know, the market going down and up and you don't know when the next recession is going to be, well, that affects single family a lot more than it does multifamily because your single family valuation is based on what your next door neighbor's house is worth, what it sells for. So whatever it sells for, if it's a similar house, that's probably what your house is going to be worth. So if the market goes down then the, and his house sells for less, then your house is worth less money compared to, let's say, multifamily, which is based on like a business. So it's based on how much income the property brings in. So it's actually based on your net operating income. So you can actually what's called forced appreciation. That's what you do. You either increase the rent or the income for the property or decrease the operating expenses. And that actually drives the value of the property up. And that's forced appreciation compared to, like again, a residential property where it's just based on okay. comps. So obviously yeah. pros and cons to both, but it sounds like the multifamily is a little bit less risk as far as when you're talking about recession markets and things like that. Yeah, it is. It's less risky. You know, even in the last recession, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like less than 2% foreclosures or something on multifamily properties. You know, rents did go down a little bit, but for the most part, you know, multifamily survived and did well compared to when you heard about the single family properties and these new like single family housing developments that are ghost towns for a while. I mean, you know, it got hit really hard. I think I forgot to go over the disadvantage. Okay, I think yeah. I need to go over the disadvantages yeah, yeah. of multifamily. I mean, there are a few. I mean, I mentioned the tenant quality. Again, they're more complex. I mean, there's more work. There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to handle. So that also means you're probably, you know, depending on how big the property is, you're going to have to bring more team members in. 
you know, in the multifamily space, we like to say it's a team game. Like there's networking and partnerships going on all the time. Like we're always talking to each other, always like, hey, if you find a deal in this market, maybe we should partner on it. I can bring some capital. You can bring this and, you know, back and forth because it takes multiple people to get something like that, something that complicated together and successful. And then these are kind of advantages and disadvantages, but there's a higher barrier of entry for price and for competition. So that's kind of good and bad. You know, if you're trying to get in, obviously it's harder, but if you're already in, then you're keeping people out. So it just depends on how you look at it. That's good. A lot more moving parts with the multifamily, it sounds like, which it makes sense because it is a bigger more upkeep, more things that worry about and higher prices, things like that. So yeah, because you hear about people flipping houses, all that thing. Is it really that much to the market? The location has a big part to play in any sort of kind of rental property. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's probably the first thing you need to look at. I mean, when someone sends me a property, if I'm not familiar with the market, I do a quick Google search. I mean, you can get these tools for free. You can use paid tools. I mean, I have all of them at this point, but when I first started, And I still do. I mean, you just Google search. Like, let's say it's in Tampa, Florida. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know anything about Tampa, Florida. I'm just Google Tampa population and see what that population is looking like. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it flat? See what that looks like. Give you kind of a baseline. And then go to another free resource is city-data.org. You can get all kinds of information about the markets there. You type in the city, you'll get, you know, your median household income. You'll get the crime rates. You'll see the trends. That's a great free tool that I still use. Whenever you level up with commercial properties, you end up using, you know, CoStar, things like that. Those are really expensive. But, you know, really, you know, with residential stuff, I mean, you can just use the tools that everybody uses. I mean, Zillow and Redfin and Realtor.com. I mean, they're perfectly fine. I mean, they track the MLS pretty quickly. You know, if it hits the MLS, it hits Zillow within a few hours. Okay. And you mentioned like, if you got a deal in Tampa. So with real estate, do you have like, I'm in Indiana. So could I only do real estate in Indiana or are there special licenses for like nationwide or how's that work? I think you're talking about maybe like an agent license or a broker license. That's to buy and sell real estate for other people. When you're doing it for yourself, you can do it anywhere. I have rarely bought property locally, but it depends on your market. I mean, if all things equal, investing in your backyard is going to be better because you can keep an eye on the property, you can keep an eye on the vendors, the contractors, the property managers, that kind of stuff. But a lot of times people don't live where they can invest. I mean, I live in San Diego, so it's very difficult to find properties here that cash flow. Most people, you know, invest in a property and break even and that's a win. They're just like, yes, this is, I found a crazy good deal because I can break even. You know, it depends on where you're at. But if you're in Indiana, I'm sure there are some very good cash flowing markets that you can invest in around there. That makes sense. So it's almost like you're almost just kind of moving. You're buying a house and then you're just having someone pay you rent. Yeah. Is there a lot of like contractual things you need to do with renters, like people who are renting or just kind of like one, what's that look like? The kind of the red tape with all that? Yeah. I mean, you have to have a lease. I mean, you've got to get a lease together. You can find lease forms. Another good resource. And I started in real estate where a lot of people did. And that was just listening to Bigger Pockets, like the Bigger Pockets podcast. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but it's kind of the authority in residential real estate. They've since kind of grown and ventured in. Some of their guys have ventured into commercial real estate, but they're really well known for, you know, 
entry level people getting into fix and flips or buying holds or, you know, doing their first deal and all that. And I think they even coined the term house hack. I mean, it all comes from bigger pockets. So it's a great place to start. I mean, listen to their podcast. They put out all kinds of books you can read. It's just a great place to get started and, and they're pretty entertaining. So it's a good way to, you know, kind of get hooked. Cool. Yeah, no, definitely have to check that out. Cause I think it's just kind of what you do, your passive income, the attorney podcast, like we need to have passive income. We have to have that multiple streams of passive income to level up, to get to be able to do things in life and super important. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, most people just work at their job and that's their only stream of income. You know, most people think of that as like safe, right? Most people are like, I have a really good job. So that's the safest thing I could be doing. But actually, that's the riskiest thing you can be doing is just having your job and not having anything else. I don't invest in traditional investments anymore, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you need to diversify, invest in traditional stocks and bonds and mutual funds and index funds. Be careful with it. I don't love that stuff anymore. But, you know, there's some people that do invest in real estate, invest in businesses. I mean, you know, if you have some time to create a side hustle, do it. I mean, you've got to create multiple streams of income, you know, just to be safe. I mean, to eliminate some of that risk. For sure. Yeah. Because if one of the ships go down, you still have the rest, you know, kind of carrying the fleet. So exactly. Okay. No, it's been good. So I guess you've had a lot of great information on this that we can kind of go back over. But if someone today was like this year, I'm going to get into real estate, what would be like maybe your like three guideposts for them to get into their first property somehow? Number one is you got to start getting educated. So again, some of those resources I named, I mean, I think Bigger Pockets is probably the easiest one to digest when you don't know a lot about real estate. I would say get educated. So listen to Bigger Pockets, read some books. You know, you kind of go through this natural progression of, you know, listen to podcasts, reading the books, and then, you know, maybe paying for some education. And that, that probably goes to the next point is you get a coach, get a mentor doesn't have to be paid, but it might be. There's there's nothing wrong with paying for, you know, leveling up. And if you want to go into fix and flipping, maybe find somebody that will either take you under their wing, at least give you some advice that's already doing what you want to do. Or if not, then, you know, pay for it. If you have to pay for it, you have to pay for it. You know, and that's probably going to be the best kind. You just have to be careful because there's so many, you know, gurus out there that sell their courses, they sell their mentorship, and they don't even do what they sell anymore. So you've got to be very careful when you do pay for something. But if you find the right person, nothing wrong with that. So say get education, get a mentor. And the third thing is just take action. That's where people get lost because they get interested. They listen to the podcast. They read the books. They might even might even get a mentor. But at, at some point, you've got to just take action. And when you haven't done it before, it's tough to do because you're a little bit scared. You don't know what you're doing. And you think, oh, well, maybe if I just wait, there's going to be a better deal. Just get it done. I mean, you've got to take action at some point and just do it. Awesome. Very good guidepost. I think those three things are super critical and crucial in a lot of different endeavors, the same kind of process. They can be duplicated. So thanks for that. One question that kind of popped in my head though, that I'd like to hit on before we wrap up is what is the loan acquisition process? Is it really a hard process to get a loan to buy a house? Or I mean, I guess it's just based on percentage down and things like that. But if you're talking about, especially doing the house hack, is it a different process for that loan or the same kind of thing? If you do a house hack, that's the beauty of it. It's the same as getting just a loan on your personal residence because it is your personal residence. I know a lot of your listeners are entrepreneurs. It gets a little bit harder for us. I mean, when I was working at a big law firm with an awesome W-2, you know, they give me loans left and right. <laughs> it was a lot easier to get loans. When you're an entrepreneur, you know, they got to dig into the underwriting a little bit closer and check out your income and expenses and all that kind of stuff. 
But, you know, there are other ways to do it. And it's the way that I have to get loans now because I have, you know, such a fluctuating income that goes up and down and left and right. They're a private lender. So you might pay a little bit higher interest rate. You know, you're not going to get that, you know, sub 2% interest rate that's been going around lately, but you might end up paying like 4% or something like that, which, you know, that's not bad. I mean, these interest rates are going to catch up soon anyway. So you can find other ways to do it. You just have to get creative and network and ask around and you can find a way to get something financed. That's good. And I think sometimes that maybe has a lot of fear or nerves people have or with getting that and the whole process, all the like intricate logistics and wording. And I think it goes back to learning and finding a mentor uh, will really help get people on the right path. Yeah. And if it's your primary residence or a house hack, the easiest thing to do is wherever you do your banking, call them up and just have a conversation with their mortgage officer and they'll start walking you through it. And even if you don't end up getting a loan from them, you at least kind of get the ball rolling and you start learning you know, what they're looking at as far as from an underwriting standpoint and see if you qualify. If you don't qualify, then maybe you're going to have to be like, okay, well, I'm going to figure out another way to do this. So look at private lending and some of those folks. Gotcha. Cool. This has been good. A lot of good information for kind of getting started in the real estate game. And yeah, it's just crucial to get multiple things going for people to really kind of be safe and continue to grow on that. Before we do kind of wrap up, I asked one question of my guests, and that has to do with the fifth trait of pencil leadership being we are created uniquely and with the purpose to leave a positive mark on the world. And so when everything is said and done for you here on earth, what do you hope your positive mark is? I hope that I've affected people in a positive way. I mean, I know that sounds kind of general, but you just have to do things the right way. You know, you come across a lot of pathways in your life, and especially as entrepreneurs, you know, you're a lot more free and you have a lot of decisions to make left and right. And sometimes you'll be tempted to, you know, make the wrong decision or cut edges or, you know, make a quick buck when you're hurting somebody else. You need to, you know, be conscious of those types of decisions whenever they come up. And if you keep making the right decision, then hopefully, you know, I'll be and you'll be remembered, you know, as generally just a good person. They did business the right way. That's awesome. You know, have that character going in everything you do. So good mark to be leaving, Seth. And uh, so where can people, I know you have your Passive Income Attorney Podcast that people can listen to. Where else can people connect with you and see what you're doing? Yeah, so Passive Income Attorney Podcast, PassiveIncomeAttorney.com. That's where you can find that. Go to LawCapitalPartners.com is my real estate website. You can check that out. Join the investor club, get on my investor list, and I'll send you the deals that we participate in. We'll invest in them together. Outside of that, you can find me on all social media platforms at slash Seth Paul Bradley. Cool. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Seth, for being on Pencil Leadership today. All right. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for tuning into this episode today. If you found value at all from this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It just helps us get this show, these messages out in front of more people. And don't forget to share this with someone who you think could benefit from listening to as well. Now let's go out and be pencil leaders.